This episode of the Asia Rising podcast was recorded in front of a live Zoom audience. To find out more about our upcoming events, where you can listen in and even ask a question yourself, go to latrobe.edu.au forward slash Asia. Welcome to Asia Rising, a podcast from Latrobe Asia, where we discuss news, views, and general happenings of Asian states and societies. I'm your host, Matt Smith. Singapore has long been a global hub of business, uniquely positioned in the world of economics at a crossroad, serving multiple time zones and business interests. While the highly developed city-state is home to the world's second busiest port, it has no natural resources and relies largely on international trade for its economic prosperity. How does a new reality of limited travel and pandemic restrictions look from Singapore? And what changes can we expect to see in the global marketplace? Here to discuss this with me today is His Excellency Mr. Kwok Fook Seng, Singapore's High Commissioner to Australia. From 2011 to 2014, he was Singapore's permanent representative to the World Trade Organization and World Intellectual Property Organization in Geneva. And he was the ambassador for climate change from 2014 to 2016. Thank you for joining me, Mr. Kwok. Thanks for having me, Matt. So uh, we've got a broad range of uh, topics that we can discuss today. So I thought we'd uh, jump into it now saying, uh, how are you enjoying your pandemic? (laughs) (laughs) Uh, I think um, we're more more fortunate here in in Canberra than many others. And and I do want to say to all our friends in Melbourne and Victoria that we we are with you in spirit. It's a tough time, but... um, as you can see, we'll speak a little bit about Singapore's experience with the pandemic. Um, the, you do cross over to the other side. There is an end to the tunnel. <laughs> it's not often that I would say oh, I would rather be in Canberra than Melbourne, but there you go. That's what this time has done to me. So Singapore is being praised for its reaction to the COVID-19 pandemic. So what's your view then on the key challenges? And do you believe that the virus is under control for now? Matt, we've never held ourselves out to be an example of any in any way. I think there's been a lot of media attention, perhaps in Australia, because the policy settings between Australia and Singapore are often very similar and therefore makes for good comparison. So I think, you know, that's the context. I can speak a little bit about our own experience in terms of our responses. They were shaped very much by SARS 17 years ago. Mm. At one level, we were prepared when this hit. And I think the focus was on a couple of things. First, ensuring that our healthcare workers on the front line were protected. And second, ensuring confidence amongst our population in the response measures, including a transparency about the case numbers and rapid communications. I mean, the government for the first time set up WhatsApp groups to to push information out. And when you have that and people kind of uh, believe or trust in the system, it helps with compliance because we're asking populations to do a lot of things that involve discipline. And as I spoke about the text messaging system, I just got one that said today's case numbers are 31. So as many of our friends will, will know, from April of this year, we've been managing two universes. First, in the broader community, we've actually had quite a consistently manageable caseload. The numbers had never gone beyond 58 in the general community in Singapore. Mm. Uh, that was also at the beginning of April. But you would 
be familiar that we have a guest worker, migrant worker community that numbers in you know, 300 over 1,000. And once the infection found its way in there, these uh, workers live in what I would describe to Australian audiences as FIFO camp-like settings, except far more dense. The largest one of these houses about 160,000 workers. So you can imagine like a cruise ship or other places where that kind of proximity is very dense, that spread rather rapidly. Mm. So we've had to apply ourselves to making sure that we reduced the density, we separated those who tested positive from those who tested negative, catering to their well-being, on-site medical care. So it's been a long journey, but now in August, um, we're down to double-digit cases in that community. And in the general community, we're down to about one or zero daily. So I think it's as under control as we can get it recognizing that you know you cross a border and there are different situations in all uh, different countries so i think what we are now moving psychologically our our population to is to accept that there will be low but persistent number of cases and have an appetite to reopen our economy with this reality start resuming our activities but to be very disciplined about what um one of your great health experts, uh, Jane Halton, highlighted in a webinar recently, non-pharmaceutical interventions. The disciplines of safe distancing, wearing a mask if you're in a proximate area where you cannot keep a safe distance, the hand washing, all of those disciplines affects all of us and the population is the front line, not the medical workers. It's everyone and we basically will have to resume our economic activity by learning how to live with COVID and also at the same time learn to be considerate of others and how we help each other get through this. Mm. So that's getting it in control in your own borders, but Singapore is a, a country that is has a strong reliance on international trade. What situation does COVID-19 leave Singapore in just as, as an economic level? Yeah, I think we've been a hub, we've been a maritime aviation hub. So when flows get disrupted, the hub is impacted. But I think we have to turn our attention to the positives and focus on the way forward. And what we're looking at really is how do we grow our economic activity, including by adapting and perhaps by doing what we do even better. I'll give you a couple of examples. Some of the trends that we're seeing is not a surprise at one level. One is that technology enablement has helped many to cope with this crisis. Mm. So digital uh, adoption has accelerated. And in our local economy, that's no different. Even hawkers in food courts have been helped to go online and join the whole food delivery game, which uh, helped them to survive. But if you look at a broader level, we have continued to play a role in logistics and in connectivity. So throughout these months, you know, Singapore Airlines, for example, in terms of freight operations, six weekly freighter aircraft have never stopped flying, Mm. but they now fly passenger aircraft carrying cargo. And for the whole period of the pandemic, they were only not flying to Australian uh, cities for a total of, I think, 10 days or so. Right. 
after that, they resumed, and even if the passenger cabin was empty, they were carrying cargo. Some of this was uh, under the IFAM arrangement, which the federal government put in. Some of it is on their own steam. Some of that is supported by the Singapore government. But I think recognizing that you have to cater to food security, you have to cater to the flow of essential goods, that's important. So the airline, in spite of the challenges, in spite of the, the costs uh, to them, continued to play that role. The other one is maritime. We were seeing a picture where many countries were denying ships a change of crew because of the risks presented. This is no different from cruise ships that were turned away from different ports. The crews that were working on board, whether it's an oil tanker or a cargo ship, some of them were on board for coming up to 14 months. So even from a humanitarian point of view, we felt we had to do something and working with their companies, we created a system that allows them crew change. It's expensive. The companies have to charter planes to bring in the, the new crew, take the old one home. We make sure that they are adequately protected. But we've got to help that carry on. Those parts are sometimes underappreciated. We, we are so overwhelmed by all the disruption. Mm. Actually, keeping things ticking is equally important. So one of the challenges for Singapore or for every country really at the moment is to how to selectively open up travel again, whether it's for, for business or tourism. And that would be a extremely high priority for Singapore, I imagine, uh, if you want to get the business going you know, anywhere near where it was before. A recent example of the impending ease of travel restrictions is with Japan from September. Mm -hmm. And you were just telling me about Australia as well. So Mm -hmm. How does a new reality of limited travel and pandemic restrictions look from Singapore? Can you, can you talk me yeah. through that decision process? I think like Australia, we were very early in locking down the border because more so for us as a hub, if we didn't stem the flow, the infection rate would have been much higher. So it bought us some time. But now coming out on the other end, it comes back to what is essentially a risk management system and also whether our population is supportive of that in terms of the policies that we, we will introduce. Over the weekend, we had just announced unilaterally, so this is not a reciprocal arrangement, but based on our own assessments, travellers from Australia, except for Victoria, I'm sorry, um, <laughs> will serve a quarantine period of just seven instead of 14 days. And that's a recognition that, you know, things are largely under control. There's another tier for two countries only, from New Zealand and Brunei, where they have uh, very successfully suppressed the virus. Travelers don't need to quarantine, but they will undergo a swap test upon arrival. Mm. Of course, you, you wait until the results of. So we're introducing various different ways to kind of restart this activity. But I would say there are different constituencies when you talk about travel. First, uh, there's business people who obviously need to make contact, look at the investments that they're making, one category. And for them, maybe 14 days of quarantine in each place they arrive at is a very high transaction cost. Mm. A second group, students, professionals who are working in each other's economies. And this will include people who then you know, need to visit family each way for obvious reasons. These are longer term people crossing the borders so there might be an appetite for the 14-day quarantine. Um, I think the third category, which is tourists, and that's probably the furthest away 
what we have with different interlocutors at this point is catering to what we call essential business travel is um, already in place with China and Malaysia. But it involves a swap test regime that will substitute for the 14-day quarantine, yeah. uh, along with a very strict uh, adherence to a declared itinerary. Uh, you will have an in-country sponsor who has to look after your transport so that no using of public transport. So this is just a risk management system that allows us to get certain essential activity restarted. So we're engaging with our partner countries to talk about this. We recognize that the health situation is different in every country. The imperatives that people are operating to are slightly different, there are different nuances. So uh, the key is to be talking now, to be ready when there is appetite that we'll be able to move quickly to resume such things when we're able to. Mm. And it's going to be something that I imagine will need to be consistently reassessed as you know, cases, sure. unfortunately, might flare up. You might have sure. outbreaks in different areas and everybody's going to have to balance the while seven days isn't sitting in quarantine for 14 days in Singapore, is the seven days a high sort of risk? So, yes. I mean, you would be at the position where you've been sitting in Canberra for about six months now, I am close to, wouldn't you? Probably more, yes. <laughs> <laughs> but I think what we hope to see is if enough like-minded countries work together on this, you will develop a best practice mm. over time and establish the kind of safe benchmarks. I think nobody is in doubt that we want to do this safely. We are responding to certain economic realities, but at the same time, the health imperative should not be compromised. So I think it's about finding a, a way forward. Um, I'm a bit conscious of the time and that I want to uh, leave it open to the audience, but uh, just a couple of things that I want to touch on. So mm. Singapore had a recent election and notably, uh, congratulations, you now have an official leader of the opposition as mm -hmm. a result. Uh, with the upcoming elections in both the United States and New Zealand, what lessons do you hope can be learnt for trying to engage safely in voting during a pandemic? Indeed, uh, Matt, our parliament was just opened yesterday evening, as a matter of fact. Look, I think we weren't the only ones to have held an election. Mm. South Korea had one earlier in the year, I think in March. Even here in Australia, we had the Eden Monaro um, by-election. And in fact, uh, for us, our embassy was an overseas polling center. So we engaged with coming to your question about how to do this safely. We did engage very actively with all the authorities, medical and otherwise, to make sure that we did it in a way that gave confidence. Mm. But what it essentially meant was that we followed the best practice that was going on in Singapore. And so in Singapore, you know, a couple of million people voted without a spike in infections. So it can be done. That's great. It's difficult, but it can be done. Mm. We had a blowout in terms of queuing time and waiting time, which caused a lot of frustration. But I think everybody understood at the end of the day that it was more important to do this safely. So voters were required to wear a mask. There were copious amounts of hand sanitizing. But imagine this, we had to coach people to say, in fact, the hand sanitizer has something to do with your mask. Before you put on a mask, you've got to be sure your hands are clean. Otherwise, you're contaminating the mask in the first place. Mm. And then before you take off your mask, you should also clean your hands, sanitize before you go near your face. So we had a comment from 
one of the voters who came through and said, I took it as a, as a compliment, although they said it in frustration, you guys take this very seriously, huh? <laughs> yes, it is your safety as well as ours, you mm. know. So I think it does talk about a behavioral change and holding an election, like everything important in life, we just have to redesign the process in a safe way and then find a way to do it. Mm. Otherwise, everything comes to a grinding halt. And I think that's the key. Singapore has been making efforts to expand green infrastructure, but now the focus is being put on business survival, mm. not just in Singapore, but everywhere yeah. in the world, really. So yeah. is there still room for a green economy and addressing climate change? And I ask you specifically because of the, the previous hats that you've had yes, on in your course. career. Yeah, yeah, it's a hat that infects your heart. So I, I will easily say yes, there is still room. And in fact, you shouldn't see the two business survival and green infrastructure or sustainability as binaries. In fact, they can be part of the same spectrum. And it's very much what we embrace as a philosophy. So I mentioned that um, Parliament reopened last night. And one segment of uh, our president's speech, actually, and I'm just pulling it up so I can quote it to you, mm. touched on sustainability, saying that we will make I quote, a major push for sustainable growth. We will reimagine how we plan our city, redesign urban mobility, and grow using less resources in a low carbon future. So in other words, again, I'm quoting her, turn our aspirations for a greener Singapore into a competitive advantage. Now, what does that mean? Because um, I'll give you a little bit granular detail if you'll indulge me. We had put out our enhanced commitment to the Paris process earlier this year, but the details were put out in a press release in April. And this includes ramping up our renewables deployment from the present 350 megawatt to 2 gigawatt peak. Now, what does that mean? We're targeting about 10% of our current daily peak electricity use. Now, that may sound very small, but Singapore is 700 square kilometers with the present efficiency of PV cells, you could plaster the whole island and you wouldn't be able to generate what we, we need by way of electricity. Mm. But at least we've set a target and a stretch one to kind of signal to the whole economy that we need to make this transition. We are engaging all our industries to be global best in class in energy efficiency. This comes to the point I was making. It helps your bottom line. You save money. Your bottom lines get better. And that's also business survival. So a sustainable imperative does not have to be at the expense of the other. I can go on, but there's a lot of examples. We will be, we have capped our vehicle growth mm. and we'll be incentivizing uh, electric vehicles, including infrastructure, greening of our buildings by way of energy efficiency again. And most importantly, there will be a carbon tax. This was announced a couple of years ago, uh, but that will come into effect. And we will have 80% of our economy, of our, of our emissions, in fact, covered by this carbon tax with no exemptions. Mm. Do you think that that's the sort of thing, though, that is, is still viable in a post-pandemic society, really, for the, that to be a priority, for a carbon tax to be no exemptions? Well, it's not a priority per se. It is part of the disciplines you're putting into your economy. I would say the no exemption is a lesson we've learned from other places 
in the world where you've seen it implemented with all sorts of leakages. Mm. And I think the key is how do you implement it in a way that is effective? And you could start with a low rate so that industries get used to it and then the mechanics of it gets easier. But I think what we're seeing now, I understand your emphasis on survival. We're seeing governments put a lot of money on the table, hundreds of billions by way of economic support. Mm. And actually, if you listen to the conversations going on, many of these governments are also seeking to build back better, that when you come out on the other side of the, of the pandemic, that we will use reform and the opportunity and the political capital that they've gained, really, to do things better, to improve sustainability, to lower costs, lower frictions for economic growth. So I think it's a different journey for every economy, for every jurisdiction. Mm -hmm. I think generally it should not be presented in a dichotomous way that being sustainable and survival can be part of the same spectrum. Uh, so I'm going to be throwing to the audience questions in uh, just a minute. So sure. before I do that, uh, just one final question. What about Southeast Asia's response to the pandemic? Uh, has COVID-19 helped or hindered cooperation amongst Asian countries? Because mm. I, I know sometimes you all like a little bit of a disagreement about different things there in ASEAN. So I'm, I'm sure that there's uh, lots of different views on what should be going on at the moment. I think a criticism often levied on us in ASEAN is that we don't act. And I think in a time of crisis, people expect big grand schemes to kind of save the world with. But if you look at this pandemic and you look at whether it's the EU or other regional groups in Latin America, South Asia, you've not really seen, you know, neon light headlines, what we're going to do to save ourselves and each other. Mm -hmm. But what actually has happened is the kind of groundwork that was laid during what I would call peacetime has been put to a stress test. And this comes back to what I was talking about earlier, the connectivity, the logistics, the flow of essential goods, food security amongst uh, the region. Sure, there was an initial disruption, I think, as all the health authorities became supreme and had to react for domestic reasons, the border suffered. But very quickly, I think people realized and started talking to each other. So ASEAN, if you look at it as a block, started to have a resumption of these flows. And if you turn to the future and look at recovery, they're now also talking about a uniform recovery plan. A bit of what you were describing, having a systematic way, objective criteria for how we reopen traveling between countries. So it's based on understood criteria. So no hard feelings. If your health situation changes, we'll, we may have to tweak the, the settings, things like that to create a, a way forward for each other. So I think there were no big headlines, but in a way we've continued to help each other out and continue to weather the crisis together quite well. All right. So I might uh, throw to the audience now. So we'll start with Greg Dingle. Are you there? Yes, uh, I'm a researcher at La Trobe and the Business School, and I uh, had a research project planned uh, for uh, Singapore this year, working with a government agency, which was Sports Singapore. My discipline area is sport management, but it was also working with the, the Meteorological Service Singapore. My question is, is it likely that government and non-government agencies or, or research partners will be willing to accept 
researchers on the ground in Singapore. There's obvious reasons why that may not happen, but we'd like to get back there as soon as we can. I think, well, it's slightly different in, in Australian sense that you do have legislation surrounding your border movements. For us, we don't, but we have had all this advice about restrictions for travel. But when it comes to restarting economic activity, and I think research definitely qualifies as one cluster, you know, a subset of that, work with your in-country partners to check with the relevant authorities to get the kind of uh, clearances you need. Because we've seen a resumption at the height of this. There were people who were working in our economy who were out of country and unable to come back in for obvious reasons. I think everyone's been experiencing that. And that backlog has been starting to clear. We've been able to kind of work with companies, work with their sponsors to get them in in a safe way, quarantine, all of those things. So short answer, Greg, in principle, yes. And I think this will depend very much on the projects you're working on and the partners that you have they should be able to find ways to get some of this activity restarted. There's a limit to what you can do over Zoom. All right. So the next question that we'll be taking here is from uh, Caitlin Byrne at the Griffith Asia Institute. Really great discussion. Thanks so much for uh, taking us through Singapore's approach. You know, my question to some degree has been answered. I'm really interested in this idea of build back better. Mm. And I was in a conversation with uh, Martin Adelgawa yesterday He said, you know, are we at risk of just paying lip service to this concept? What can we do, not just as nations to talk about building back better, but on a regional basis to lift aspirations, particularly in economic recovery that addresses climate and development goals? You've already spoken about it a little. Anything more you could add would be wonderful. Thank you. Thanks, Caitlin. While I was listening to you, one one thought occurred to me. I had read... Talking about ASEAN, for example, some ASEAN countries have actually had to borrow from the regional development banks, Asian development banks, for the economic stimulus and support that they are rolling out in their countries. Now, when it comes to rebuilding, I think these institutions are excellent resources for helping these economies plan and come back in a stronger way, including in sustainability and the development goals, all of that. So I think ultimately what I see is a great opportunity for governments. It is a sort of a global pause. We've all been forced to to kind of re-examine our fundamentals. But I don't see the climate imperative or the SDGs as all of a sudden overnight because of this pandemic, taking on a different characterization. They are all worthy goals to pursue. So I think it is about being able to reconcile those And because of some of the relationships now formed through the pandemic, those partnerships, those resources might be able to help individual countries and the region as a whole, I think, come back better. All right. So uh, now we'll throw the question to uh, my boss, who is always reliable for a question. Uh, Beck, are you there? I am. Well, thank you, Your Excellency. This has been a terrific discussion. And I was hoping to ask a question about Australia and Singapore bilateral relations. Yes. Uh, So I was wondering, uh, in your view, what are some of the key similarities and differences in the ways that Australia and Singapore approach uh, rising China 
uh, in the region. And a second question to add to that, if I may, how can these middle power states strengthen cooperation in order to deal with a region that is coming under pressure from this increasing strategic competition. Of course, some of these dynamics appear to be intensifying or accelerating with the COVID-19 pandemic. Thank you. Thanks, Beck. How long do we have again? (laughs) That's That's a very big question. And thank you for putting us in the middle power tier with Australia, we definitely don't see ourselves (laughs) in that space. And in fact, that's where I'm going to start as a stab at the big question that you just asked. You know, Singapore is fundamentally a very small country. Australia, on the other hand, has a a very different heft and a much bigger, for instance, a diplomatic network and resources. But that said, I think what we do share is the focus to try and bring positives out of any situation. I think the tensions are there for particular reasons. I mean, there are elections going on in the US. There are action and reaction type of dynamics going on in certain relationships. But I think we've never seen ourselves in that same league. But, you know, being small sometimes means that we're viewed not so threatening, or maybe sometimes when we provide friendly advice, it is not taken in the wrong way. And to be honest, I think actually Australia does that equally well. It does so too. Sometimes it doesn't get credit in the media. I think sometimes headlines seek to focus on, of course, what looks like In the old days, we used to say it helps to sell newspapers, but I guess today it just attracts uh, uh, eyeballs on on your pages and clicks, (laughs) right? Quietly, I don't think we're that different, but at the same time, we move in perhaps different tiers of the same system. And this comes back to ASEAN again, Matt, you raised this. You know, if you look at what we describe as a regional architecture, that mishmash of different forums, different platforms, allows players to use different means and different channels to convey messages, to engage with each other, and to, at the end of the day, make our views heard by each other. I must say, you know, here again, Australia has been a very staunch supporter of ASEAN, our first dialogue partner, no less. These are the things that moving forward even if as frictions get accentuated, certain fundamentals will help us weather this better rather than worse. All right, uh, that might be a, a good place to uh, leave the conversation. Your Excellency, Mr. Kwok Fook Sen, thank you very much for your time today. Uh, I hope to one day buy you a nice socially distanced coffee. Thank you very much for your time. <laughs> I hope so. Thanks for having me. Thank you, everyone, for making time to join us. You've been listening to Asia Rising, a podcast from La Trobe, Asia. If you like this podcast, you can subscribe in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you may cast your pod. Please leave a review. They are, as always, very appreciated. You can follow La Trobe Asia on Twitter. We are at La Trobe Asia. I'm Matt Smith, and thanks for listening.